If you would take your scriptures and turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. That's the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. Zephaniah chapter 3. We will be reading the entire chapter. Zephaniah 3. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day, you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For when I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom is reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at, that, at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, you told us 
you have written to those who believe in the name of your only begotten Son, so they may know that they have eternal life. This, Father, is the confidence we have in approaching you, that if we ask anything according to your will, you will hear us, and whatever we ask, we know that we will receive it, for we ask in Christ's name. O Lord, we humbly come this morning to your word. We come asking, as you have told us to do, for your guidance and understanding and knowing this glorious gospel. Open the windows of heaven. Pour your grace on us. In his name. Amen. Now, at the close of verse 7, things seem very bleak for Jerusalem, for the whole world. Zephaniah has shown men, especially the men of Jerusalem, as incorrigible and to the point of being completely without hope. It appears that what will follow will be a complete and final judgment of their sins. Verse 8 seems to bring this to a close as the day of judgment is at hand and all nations and men are called to come, to come and stand in that judgment. Because of their rebellion against God, because of the hardness of their hearts and his offer of mercy, they are at a loss for any kind of response to God at all. They can see it very clearly. There is absolutely, absolutely nothing they can do to divert this great disaster. All men left to themselves will come into this judgment with no hope of rescue. God has been very gracious to send to them prophet after prophet. He sent those prophets to show them their sin and to show them their need of a Savior. But because of the hardness of their hearts, men have failed to accept the words of these prophets and to change their ways. They are about to receive what they deserve, and they have no one to blame but themselves. The the message is clear. Man can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to redeem himself before a holy God. It also shows the law can make nothing perfect. In order to survive and become a blessing in God, man needs something beyond himself. The admonition in the 8th verse is to wait for God. We believe God is sovereign, all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, holy, and immutable. We need to wait on him because there's nothing, nothing we can do to deliver ourselves from the mess we have made of life. God gave the law not to save you, but to show you that you cannot save yourself. Therefore, you need to find something to trust, something to hope in, apart from yourself or the law. There's only one thing that can offer you that hope. God sent his only begotten son into this world as a word of hope for mankind. With a hard heart and with a dead soul, you could never see and understand your need of this one who was sent. So God was obliged to first do a work in the hearts of his people so they could see and hear the wonderful offer of grace given in Jesus Christ. The message is God will work this out according to his plan. He is the almighty sovereign God. Zephaniah shows the scattering of God's people by judgment. He now shows the formation of something new, the formation of a holy communion of God's people. 
we would call this the church of Jesus Christ. The wonderful thing shown about this restored remnant is where it comes from. It will be from all nations, both Jews and Gentiles coming together out of this sinful world. They were called to be made into a new nation, a holy people to serve God. They shall all join together, join together to worship and serve the one and only true and living God, and this will happen as a work of God himself. Let's turn to Zephaniah 3, verses 9 through 13, and learn about this work of the sovereign Lord Almighty and what he's doing, what he's going to do. First, we will learn that God will purify. Second, we shall see that God will call. Third, we will observe God will remove. Fourth, we shall confirm that it is God who will persevere or preserve this work at the very end. Falling upon the heels of, of this devastating news of a coming judgment is a word of hope. Even in the days of Noah, there was hope given through the ark. Verse 9, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. It's God. It's God who will come to the people and purify them. This cannot happen without God's action. This is a great moment, and it is only a sovereign God who can accomplish this task of taking unclean men and purifying them. Note the scale on which this will be done. It's very big. It's the whole world. God declared the human heart to be so hard that it was beyond repentance. This was applicable to all men. Therefore, it comes very clear that any turning of men or nations can only be done by the sovereign grace of God. He says he will restore to the peoples a pure language. Why is he going to purify the people? He does it so they may call on the name of the Lord. This is what the dead of heart could never do. They lost all ability to seek God and communicate with him through their sins. Now, God promises. He promises to raise up a group of people from across all nations to stand up and speak with the purest of hearts. The first thing they will do with these new hearts is call on the name of God for salvation. This means they will acknowledge themselves as sinners, admitting their need of a Savior. They will understand their salvation comes through the works of God and God alone. They will be well aware of the fact they have nothing to offer God for his salvation. They will be granted the right to know their need of God in everything they do, especially in their salvation. O. Palmer Robertson reminds, Joel also connected the day of Yahweh with the widespread calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. Now you may recognize that, that this was the prophecy from Joel Peter used in his sermon at Pentecost to tie all of this to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The purification Zephaniah speaks of begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was his changing of the hearts of men. It was the Holy Spirit that caused throughout the world this calling on the name of God. I think there's another lesson in this idea of the purifying of the lips. 
Christians should bring their speech into line with what is sanctified. If your heart has been changed, then the things coming from your mouth must be changed. Matthew Henry says, God is declaring, I will turn the people to such a language from that evil communication which has almost ruined all good manners among them. He goes on to show converting grace refines conversation, not by wit, but by wisdom and by gentleness. We could use some of that today. There is not a single one of us who are worthy to take God's name on our lips. They must be purified. Therefore, purification of speech is needed if we are to commune with God. The words and thoughts of our hearts are what show our love for God. That's how we express our love for God. There's no other way to do it. We cannot allow both curses and blessings to come from our mouths. It is clear in James 3, 9 through 12, that curses and blessings are not both to come from the believer's mouth. Guard your tongue. All of this is true concerning the life as well as the lips. These people whose lips have been purified will come together and stand to serve him with one accord as one person engaged in one great task. This is a testimony of the purpose of the church. It is to be the place where we all come together, not for entertainment, not for socialization, but to accomplish the task of carrying the good news to a lost and dying world. You don't come to church for your own glory. You come for the glory of God. We are to be one body with one goal, and we cannot allow that body harm or that goal neglect. We labor side by side with all of God's people from all ages, both Jew and Gentile, to carry forth this great goal of declaring the wonderful grace of our loving God. The sovereign grace of God is ready and will reach out into all the world calling his people to come. Verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. The judgment of God on Israel had driven the people called of God into the whole world. They were all guilty of rebellion against their God and they suffered this terrible fate of being scattered into the world. He describes some as being beyond the river, rivers of Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia or Cush were names that represented Egypt. This gives the picture that his scattered people are from the dark regions of the unknown world of Zephaniah's day. Placed on the other side of the land of Egypt. Who is it he is calling from these dark places? His worshipers. This is not just Jews that have been scattered. It is much deeper than that. These worshipers are those who will worship in spirit and truth. These are the children, of the true children of Abraham. In Genesis Galatians, we are told Abraham was credited with righteousness because he had faith. He believed God. In Galatians 3.7, Paul says, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. These are the ones who have been scattered throughout the world. 
those who will, like Abraham, believe in God and worship him as he calls them to do in spirit and in truth. The children of Israel were an example to us today that God has scattered his people throughout the world. Here Zephaniah says the day is coming when they will be gathered in his name. What are these scattered people going to do? They will come to God and they will honor him with their offerings. Once God comes into the hearts of these people and changes their hearts, they will open their ears and hear and their hearts and believe. They'll bring a sacrifice. They will see the mercy of God, and as Paul says, they will offer their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Why will they do this? Because this is true spiritual worship. They will stop following the ways of the world, their lips will be purified, and their whole life changed, and the way they live will be transformed. The way they think and what they feel will be different and they will desire with all their hearts to live in the will of their God, the one who has called them to himself. And my friends, God sent Jesus Christ into this world. He sent him into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He called him to come and live the perfect life, die the atoning death and win the resurrection victory, things you couldn't do for yourself. And he calls us to believe and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for our salvation. Not Christ plus anything else, but in Christ and in Christ alone. That is the gospel. That's the good news. You have a Savior. A Savior who has done for you everything you could never do for yourself. And through him and through him alone can you find life with God. The promise is... God will remove from his people their shame. Verse 11. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Mr. Robertson asked, How great will that day be when God removes all the shame from his people? This means all guilt... All of its consequences are to be taken away, washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. You will be able to fulfill your duties before God because there will be nothing to inhibit you. Even when we come to that last day, that day of judgment, we will be able to stand in his presence without shame because he has removed from us our sins. We will be brought into his presence and live with him for eternity in a place where no wicked or evil characteristic such as a prideful heart or an arrogant soul will ever be found. Never again. Never again will men be so bold and foolish as to lift themselves up. For they will all know how dependent they are on their God and they will appreciate it forever. Zephaniah knew it was the sin of pride that was such an abomination before God. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. What this tells you is that genuine humility is the chief characteristic of the true believer. He cannot, 
in any way give himself any credit for anything in his life. God is the sovereign almighty God. He is the only one who controls this world and who all and all who live in it. He's the one in control. Nobody else. It's an abomination to stand and declare your own worth and ability before God. He will allow no one who does not understand the depth of their dependence on him to come into his kingdom. He's a jealous God and will share his glory with no one. Sephaniah says this remnant will be meek and humble. In verse 11, he shows the removal of your guilt and the ending of pride among his people. The means the people coming to this new kingdom will be those who know they are worthless, who understand they have nothing to offer God. They are as chaff from the threshing floor. They could very easily have been gathered together and burned with the rest of the world. But by God's grace, and only by God's grace, they have been spared and gathered into his barn instead. They have found deliverance only because they have placed their hope, their trust in God and in God alone. Here's a foreshadow of what is coming in Jesus Christ. There's only one way you can be spared this terrible fate of falling into God's wrath. That way is to recognize yourself as a sinner, lost and without hope, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus into this world for his people, those called by him, those elected by his grace, those, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, are chosen in him before the creation of the world. Those who were scattered throughout the world, both Jew and Gentile, those who have had their sin and guilt removed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is the truth of Zephaniah's words. Salvation is of God and God alone. The actions of God in this process of judgment brings about a preservation of God's people. Again, we find God speaking to us today through the actions of Zephaniah's day. The destruction of Jerusalem came because of the sinfulness of the people. He says they were to be scattered throughout the world, but then a time would come when they would be gathered back. Indeed, that time is the day of Cyrus, the king of Persia, as he restored the children of Israel to the promised land. But remember, John Calvin points out that when they returned, they weren't much better than they were before. They still intermingled with the pagans around them and refused to pay the tithe and to worship God as he called them to. You should recognize this could not have been the time of Zephaniah writes about in this verse. Before the captivity, you could hardly tell any difference between the pagan cultures living around Israel and the people called of God. After the captivity, the Jews, for the most part, quit worshiping idols. But they did not completely abandon the practices of those wicked cultures. There was still no true holiness in them. In the next verse, we find the consequences of God's preservation rather than the cause of it. Verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak to lot no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. He says, they will do no wrong. 
What this tells us, as Mr. Robertson says, the moral character of God's people will begin to conform to the nature of the one who saved them. In other words, they will begin to be imitators of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.10 declares that believers have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created them. In Ephesians, Paul says, you will be created like God in true righteousness and holiness. Zephaniah goes on to show they will not lie. The words coming from their mouths will be true and right. Matthew Henry says they will be blessed with purity both in words and actions. This takes us back to the purifying of their lips. Language is made to help us communicate with one another. If you're to imitate your Lord, then you begin with how you talk. The kind of language you use, the attitude you show toward others. Please understand, the Christian should not defile himself with that which is coarse and demeaning. Being vulgar in words or attitude is not imitating Jesus Christ. As a believer, you are called to come to God, not to defile yourself with that which is coarse and demeaning. Being vulgar in words and attitudes is not imitating Christ. We need to remember that. That's important. As a believer, you're called to be pure in your words and actions. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4 declares, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, nor swore deceitfully. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, but they will see God. Zephaniah continues, Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Mr. Robertson says, The purified lips of the remnant will not be governed by the impulses of a heart that lies. The heart of man. The heart of man has always been the root of the problem. Because of the sin of Adam, Men have dead hearts. Hearts that are dead and cold and can know nothing but selfishness. The heart is the problem. Therefore, as Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Zephaniah has already addressed this idea in Zephaniah 1.12 when he said, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who were settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. The prophets saw clearly the problem was the hearts of the people. They had closed their ears to hear and their hearts to understand. This was the sin of the nation of Israel. What John Calvin says, Zephaniah is showing, is this is a picture of the New Testament church coming to life. No, we are not perfect in our language, in our, in our hearts, but we have the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, and we can certainly do better at following the will of God than Israel ever did. Paul shows the purpose of the Spirit of God in our lives in Romans 8.27. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
we have the Holy Spirit. Thus, we can have a direct communication with God and a guide in following the will of God. This has been God's purpose for his people from the beginning of time. He uses all in the struggles of his people from Adam throughout all of the Old Testament dispensation to give you examples in order to help you live your life for him, a pure and holy life. You understand, that's the purpose of the Old Testament, to show that you're a sinner, you have need of a Savior, you can't save yourself, you need Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what Zephaniah is showing us. We have seen throughout Zephaniah this imagery of the city. The gathered people who have refused to hear and believe and the destruction that will overwhelm them. The last phrase, Zephaniah changes his focus. He turns to a pastoral scene to show the wonderful and peaceful condition the remnant of God's people will now live in. Here's grace. Grace in the middle of judgment. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. He says the flock of God's remnant will be well fed and protected. This is quite a disconnect from all that has gone before. You must recognize that the remnant will not be a people who are materialistic. They will be a people, as Mr. Robertson says, who refrain from evil and deceit. Here's the picture of the return of the theocracy. A theocracy is where God serves his king over his people. The heart of the covenant was always, I will be your God and you will be my people. What Zephaniah is showing is the reality of this restored covenantal idea. This remnant shall be God's people going about living in his will. Then he shall be their God watching over them as a shepherd in a restored paradise. The Bible repeatedly shows this concept of God's people as a flock being well pastured and lying down in security. This was the duty of the kings of Israel to protect the people. He must feed and protect the sheep. He was to shepherd the people. God told David in 2 Samuel 5, 2, you will shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Now, now in seven eyes day, we see the impending collapse of that monarchy. But here God reaffirms, he is their true shepherd. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Zephaniah sees very clearly the depth of this relationship. The people of this good shepherd will be well fed and will bed down in perfect safety. He adds to this the wonderful concept of complete safety. He says, no one, no one shall make them afraid. The prophet shows what this means in Ezekiel 34, 38, 28. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. Any enemy, any terror that they have known will be forgotten. John Calvin carries this over to the spiritual side as well when he declares God will protect them from all wrongs from which they have repented. In this, we see the restored paradise for which man was created. He was created to be the child of God. Micah 4.4 But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This comes from the promise of the covenant. 
in Leviticus 26.5, the covenant promised Israel they would live in safety in their land. The curses of the covenant were always speaking of death and destruction as well as of condemnation. But the promise, the promise to the righteous was always about enjoying the blessings of paradise and showing that none shall make them afraid. The coming day of the Lord will bring purity to the remnant of God. This glorious and divine intervention will bring salvation for both Jew and Gentile. This will be the start of a humbled, holy, and forgiven people who will be restored to a place with their God. This is the promise of the new covenant. The people of every race and age will be brought together from every nation, tribe, and people group on this planet. They will become the church of Jesus Christ, a community of new, the new covenant where they will share all the blessings this amazing grace can give. I hope you hear in this what God's purpose is. His purpose is to save your soul. His purpose is to give you a new heart, to call you to come and fellowship with him. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God every day in the middle of the day in the garden. That's what he's going to restore you to, is that place where you can have that fellowship with him. If you will place your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, acknowledge you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. That's what he's calling you to, is salvation in Jesus Christ. This new community will be made up of a people with a solid moral character, sensitive to each other's needs. A people who will do no evil, who will not be deceitful. They will be cleansed of their sin and guilt. Their pride will be purged. They will live in safety in the presence of their Lord. My friends, I know this sounds too good to be true, and it is. If you are depending on yourself to find it. Jesus Christ came to fulfill all the Old Testament ways, saying, you are responsible to do everything in this book in order to come into this wonderful place of rest and security. But you can't do that through the law. How do you do it? You do it through Jesus Christ because he's the one who has fulfilled that law. He provides for you a way into this place of hope, and it will is through his perfect life, atoning death and resurrection victory. Jesus is the new covenant come in the flesh. It is only in him you can find and secure this hope. Open your ears and listen to this message. Open your hearts and receive his help. Come acknowledging your complete failure to accomplish what the law of God calls you to do. Then trust in Christ's works and the grace he has given through this new covenant. God and God alone through Jesus Christ can do this work on your behalf. Open your ears and hear. Open your heart and believe. Place your hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone. He plainly tells you in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us pray. Father, you have told us, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know 
that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Heavenly Father, grant us this wonderful gift of love. Open our hearts to love you with all of our strength. Help us to love one another as we love ourselves. We need you, O Lord. Hear our plea and strengthen our souls. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.